So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, uh, deepening your practice. It's July 8th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Um, Pacific Daylight Time. And tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, dissolution, the fifth stage of the progress of insight. Um, but I just thought uh, if somebody had a question, we could start there or I'll launch into my um, conversation about that. I know that um, because this is meditation and attachment, you're going to want me to talk about this in, in terms of um, attachment and reflect on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Dissolution, um, uh, or bhanganana is the Pali word for that, is the, is the dissolution of the experience of the barrier between inside and outside. So um, in Shinzen language, it would be a profound flow state where uh, initially the barrier between the individual sense gates dissolves into, a, into piti or flow, and then um, the barrier between inside and outside dissolves. So you can't place the physical quality of the body in space. Uh, the, this would be the fifth stage of PT, if you uh, are familiar with uh, the way that that's described in uh, some of the uh, writings on jhana practice. Um, we come from this place of the fourth stage, which is arising and passing. And in arising and passing, what begins to give away is the fluid experience of conceptual reality. In each sense gate that you look at, uh, you see very distinctly uh, in, in a sensory clarity aspect, the arising and passing of individual sense experiences. Um, and so that takes the the ordinary sense of a fluid conceptual reality and tends to break it up into uh, its components. And then when you add to that this energetic quality of the dissolution experience, um, the perception of the solid body gives way and you are simply this energy and this awareness of the energy. Um, there's very little suffering in this experience because the sense of self is also not particularly fixated. And you can be in this uh, space for a short period of time or a fairly long period of time. Initially, uh, because the energy itself is so intense, uh, there's often a fear reaction, and the fear reaction has a tendency to shut down the uh, energy quality. So uh, maybe what you notice in the beginning of, of these experiences being uh, arising is that you have this big expansive uh, experience of energy, which is then really frightening and the fear arises and shuts it down and you come back into the sense of solidness. But as you acclimatize to this uh, experience, as it happens uh, over and over again, then you uh, are more uh, able to maintain equanimity and allow the, the quality of energy to arise. Um, as you 
do flow practice um, uh, or focusing on PT as the object of meditation, uh, each of the different sense gates breaks up into energy and then the barrier between the sense gates breaks down and then uh, finally the barrier between inside and outside breaks down and you're in the experience of simply being uh, energy and aware of that. Then uh, after however long that takes, that super concentrated, super clear state um, breaks apart and you're sort of spit out. Uh, uh, if you have the image of a fish uh, taking something in its mouth and then realizing it isn't actually food and then just spitting it out, you're, you're spit out into what's called the knowledge of the miseries. What's interesting about that is that there's no ability to concentrate at all. And um, you're in this sort of quagmire of uh, the old way in which you used to be in the world, the old beliefs that you used to have about yourself and the world, and uh, then the direct experience of that actually not being the case, and uh, having to reconcile that. Christian? When I hear about the uh, like the knowledge of the mis miseries of the dark night, um, it it resonates with me as like I imagine it to be some kind of depersonalization or derealization state. Um, and so I'm wondering, like I, I suppose it can be either like super traumatic or it can be just a little bit of a speed bump. But you're saying that it's really hard to concentrate when you get to that state. And I'm wondering if and you people, come out of it. Gotcha. Um, but I'm wondering if people that like, you know, that they had a really secure attachment or they did the attachment work to get to a really secure attachment, um, would they be relatively unaffected even on the level of concentration by that experience, as opposed to someone with a, like a, like a dissociative kind of um, disorganized attachment, they might be like totally thrown off by that. But would the secure person be relatively unaffected or are they also going to have that knowledge of the miseries like experience? Um, uh, well, I think that um, in my experience, it isn't necessarily a, a disorganization that is the problem. It's inauthenticity that's the problem. Uh, if you look at it from the attachment lens, preoccupied people tend to be the least authentic. And so they tend to be the ones that have the most difficulty with it. Uh, and the main reason for that is that uh, if you use uh, inauthenticity as one of the main ways of navigating the world and yourself, uh, and you go through this process, it's very difficult to be willing to use uh, inauthenticity as the main way of operating. And if you then have to renegotiate all of your relationships and also the relationship with yourself, because uh, inauthenticity is no longer one of the options that's available to you, then it's very disruptive, not only interpersonally, but uh, within yourself. Um, and I think that in my experience, the more authentic someone is, the less of a problem it is. Uh, 
so secure people tend to be fairly authentic and they don't have much capacity for inauthenticity. Uh, it changes the perspective of um, a belief in the solidness uh, and ongoingness of conceptual reality, but it isn't, uh, uh, so the, the adjustments that come from that aren't disruptive in the sense that uh, if you are, if you've based your way of being in relationship to yourself and uh, your relationship with all of the people that you know on an inauthentic presentation of self that you can no longer do, everything in all aspects of your life needs to be renegotiated. Uh, and that's really where the, the problem comes in. You can't rely on the constructs that you've created within yourself to protect you from the, the experiences about yourself that you don't want to know and your interpersonal relationships uh, don't work very well anymore because you can't present the inauthentic uh, uh, person that you had been operating from in the relationships. Well, why, why wouldn't a person be able to present their inauthentic presentation any longer? Is that a form of like dissociation that they would wake up to upon after having the dissolution experience? Um, I think that in order for, uh, so, so a preoccupied person believes that the best way to get the things that they want is to present themselves as the other person wants them to be. Mm. Um, it isn't that, that they understand that that isn't the best way and that they're uh, intentionally duping somebody in their conditioning, their experience is that, that that way of being was the way that did get them the results that they wanted. Uh, when you uh, um, break that apart, which is what tends to happen in the dissolution process, uh, and you see clearly that that actually is inauthentic and not uh, uh, a believable way to be, and it opens up the um, the understanding that actually that conditioning was harmful to you, uh, then it, it becomes painful to have to attempt to manufacture those uh, uh, experiences so that the other person finds them believable. Does that make so what sense? About, that does make sense, but what about in the case of the avoidant? Uh, practitioner that passes through the same insight experience, how would it affect them quite differently then? Because it sounds like that's a unique sort of crisis of awakening for the uh, overly attached person, but the avoidant, what would that be like? So the avoidant person, um, there's a few aspects of the avoidant person uh, the the way that avoidance works or dismissing uh, attachment works. One is the capacity to idealize. Uh, and so you hold uh, a impression of the conditions of your childhood in an idealized way. That's true of most dismissing people. There is an aspect of the 
derogating uh, anger of a certain uh, type of dismissing person, which is somewhat different. But and what you learn is that um, idealizing is actually a currency in relationships, and you you develop a skill at idealizing uh, not only uh, your own history, which you you are able to support because you don't actually remember much of it and also to identify in other people um, what they want um, uh, and present it in that way to get what you want. Um, the capacity to transact relationships uh, in that way is less impacted because the dismissing person has always known that the idealization was not an accurate depiction and that, that, that it was something that they use to get what they want, to transact what they want. So they, they're not rendered uh, incapable of using it anymore in the same way that preoccupied people are no longer able to manufacture a believable presentation So um, maybe the thing to do is to pay attention uh, to uh, um, uh, if you if you practice in a way that uh, allows you to have the dissolution experience, how it affects your perception of what's uh, what's actually there. Um, we you know we look at those three um, aspects, uh, not self. Uh, impermanence and uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness or reactivity as the gauges. Those are the six, seven, eight, the knowledge of the miseries. If you um, have the capacity to be inauthentic when you need to be through the use of idealization, uh, but you've always been aware of the disconnect between that uh, um, presentation and what's underneath that, the reality of it. It's different than the preoccupied person who does not, uh, they don't uh, tell themselves that they're generating an inauthentic presentation. They're tuning in to what the other person is. They're making a teleological determination of what they would have to do in order to get the other person to take care of them in, in the way that they want. And then they manufacture that presentation. But the way that it really works is that they believe what they're doing in that way. The misrepresentation is often uh, the, the uh, presentation of I'm taking care of you. And what's left out of that equation is so that uh, I can, you'll take care of me in the way that I want. That's different than a genuine expression of care for someone else. I'm taking care of you so that you'll be well taken care of is different than I'm taking care of you so that you'll take care of me in the way that I want to be taken care of. Uh, so the preoccupied mind is really about, I am uh, taking care of you in a way the, so that implicitly, you agree to take care of me in the way that, that I want. 
And then I'm constantly in a state of dissatisfaction because if you don't take care of me in the way that I want, I feel as if I'm, I'm uh, being gypped in the deal that we have, even though I've never expressed the deal and you've never agreed to it. Mm. But what would happen if uh, you see through that uh, and you are no longer able to believe it and in not being able to believe it anymore, generate the perception uh, that the other person finds believable. Then the whole system uh, sort of tilts. You can no longer generate the convincing presentation that the other person is willing uh, to be satisfied with. So, and you at the same time are too frightened of expressing yourself authentically to be able to, to uh, get uh, through a direct expression uh, the things that you want. One of the things that makes it uh, so difficult uh, and um, is that um, when you operate in that, that total pretend mode you can, and you can't pretend anymore, everyone is dissatisfied. Um, one of the things about presenting yourself inauthentically is that most people accept it as an authentic presentation. And so when you're no longer able to generate the inauthentic presentation and you're attempting to present an authentic one, they may not want that. Then what do you do? All of the relationships that are close to you that you uh, have managed through various presentations of inauthenticity aren't functioning very well anymore because you're unable to make those presentations work. And everybody is then wanting to renegotiate those relationships. I think that that's one of the characteristics of the dark night experience, that that sense of solid reality gives way, uh, the sense of who you were gives way, and your capacity to navigate those relationships um, falls away because you're quite different than you were before that experience happened. Christian. So George is a meditation teacher. Are you, are you, do you find yourself being blamed for countless relationship breakups when they reach a dissolution stage? <laughs> uh, uh, long ago, perhaps that was true, but I've learned my lesson and uh, what I tell people now, and you've probably heard me say this is, before you have the dissolution experience, start shifting to authenticity so that you can uh, adjust your relationships to where you're basically operating authentically in your relationship so that if you do have the dissolution experience, you aren't that different than you were before the dissolution experience. So for preoccupied people to be authentic in a relationship means that they would have to be able to tolerate the abandonment tear that arises when uh, they uh, experience uh, uh, authenticity. So if you remember that algorithm, the uh, and depending on how far down the rabbit hole you are, if you can still touch into authentic experience and recognize it, 
you see your authentic response to the present moment and if you think that you if you present that in, in an accurate way you'll be abandoned an, an abandonment response arises and then the inauthentic thing that you could say instead of the authentic thing arises and if you express the inauthentic thing it immediately relieves the abandonment terror the delusion is that you think that you're preserving the relationship and doing that because you are less fearful in the relationship. But a little while later, you're angry about having to do that. And so you'll notice in uh, relationships uh, with preoccupied people who aren't willing to be authentic is that there's a lot of anger, a lot of irritation in, uh, in the interactions because the preoccupied person, even though they haven't presented themselves authentically or asked authentically what they needed, um, are angry about that. Even if you meet the needs uh, that they've presented to you, they're often angry about it and unsatisfied with it because it isn't their authentic need and their authentic need has not been met. So if they ask for an inauthentic need to be met and you meet it, they're still dissatisfied because their their need hasn't been met. Now, you can get so far down the rabbit hole of inauthenticity that you don't know any longer what your needs are. And so you're really just navigating the teleological view of what the other person will accept in terms of your presentation. The uh, ultimate goal for preoccupied people is physical proximity. So you'll present, you'll throw up anything that allows you to have physical proximity. On one end, of course, is the helplessness. Uh, and on the other end is the chaotic demand for care uh, and the moral outrage that is expressed if, if you don't provide it. If you push into the authentic expression, of course, you have this intense experience of abandonment terror. And if you can hold the abandonment terror long enough, what ends up happening is this wave of terrible sadness overtakes you. And if you can ride out the wave of terrible sadness, then you come into a place of security. And if you do that enough, what begins to happen is that the thing that arises in the present moment that you understand to be your authentic experience, you can express without it causing the abandonment terror or the terrible sadness and you've come into a place of security there so to answer your question about being battered as a meditation teacher by people who have uh, terrible uh, dark night experiences or um, knowledge of the miseries uh, is the more authentic you are before that happens in your practice the the, the less difficult it is to navigate that. So if, if you were uh, leading a retreat or you're working with someone and wanting to help them advance an insight, but you, you knew you could tell that they had this uh, attachment pattern that was going to give them trouble, would you would you like flag that for them? Would you really be flagging that for them and trying to get them to work with that instead of just presenting them uh, or pushing them ahead into insight? Um, I'm, I am 
um, I don't, I find that mostly when people get into dissolution, which can be quite spontaneous and into um, the, the knowledge of the miseries afterwards, that it, if you guide them through that and you give them grounding practices, even for the person who's the most inauthentic, it's not a, a terrifying, long-lasting ordeal. What I think ends up happening in the West is that you go into um, communities, um, particularly in the mindfulness, uh, secular mindfulness world, where the teachers aren't really versed in, in these different stages. Uh, they offer practices that can lead to them. The students have the experience of that. The teachers are unable to recognize that that's what's actually happening with a student. And so then they're unable to provide remedies uh, to those states, which would work pretty well for almost everybody uh, if they were actually supported and, and, and provided uh, for the students. What kind of remedies? Well, mainly a grounding. Um, so uh, you don't, uh, what I think often happens is people stop meditating and then they're in these uh, emotionally dysregulated states and they're uh, and then they, they turn toward uh, people to help them who, who uh, don't understand uh, meditation, particularly don't understand meditation states, um, often think that they're having some kind of psychiatric crisis. Um, they might even filter them into the, or funnel them into the Western psychiatric community, which has pretty much no concept at all of what to do except drug you. Uh, that doesn't really help very much. Um, <clears throat> So a grounding technique to uh, um, typically focusing out into the uh, external space. Remember the thing that breaks down is the, the separation between internal and external. And so you're pointing them in directions to emphasize external space and internal space so that they can return to the perception of that. Um, uh, self versus not self states. That's another one that happens. Uh, uh, when is the sense of self uh, clearly present? When is it not present? Mm. How do they know the sense of self? Um, you know, coming back into a, uh, into a basic Vipassana technique is fine. Um, I teach Metta Vipassana. And so um, if the, the Vipassana side is too hot, have them withdraw into high concentration states around uh, uh, some aspect of metta. And so they come into uh, an intensely positive experience to mitigate the uh, sometimes frightening experience of, of um, not being able to place themselves. One of the other things that happens um, that is often really frightening to people is that the uh, dissolution experience comes and goes. So you finally get back to a sense of solidness and then for no particular reason that you can make sense out of, uh, it dissolves again. And so you, it creates a sense of helplessness uh, and fearfulness around when is that gonna happen? If you get uh, trapped on the dissolved side of things, you don't function very well. And so that, that's also frightening to some people. If 
But most of the time, if that experience happens, um, say, mostly on retreat, uh, well, it happens pretty ordinarily on retreat. So uh, I'm tracking them through interviews. Uh, I'm, I'm monitoring how they are progressing. I'm offering the different strategies to ground uh, uh, so that it feels um, manageable rather than uh, unmanageable. I think that the fearfulness really comes from the sense of uh, a loss of control. Um, and then, you know, you have a couple of weeks, two or three weeks of acclimatizing to the nature of it. And um, if you practice uh, in the way that's described, for instance, in the Manual of Insights, then each time you go through the cycle, uh, you have a dissolution experience and actually it becomes uh, so ordinary that it, and you have, uh, you develop the capacity to, to uh, regulate it. It doesn't seem, uh, not only does it not seem frightening, it almost takes on a quality of entertaining or pleasantness. Christian? As you gain maybe mastery or familiarity with going in and out of these states, does this become like the sense of solidity? Is that something you can come back to? Or is that something you kind of lose in a sense forever? Like is your perception forever changed or are you just kind of able to go back and forth? I don't think, uh, at least for me, the, the, the sense of believable solidness that was there before really ever returns. Um, and so you get used to things not being that solid. It's a, like a, an acclimatization to it. It doesn't prevent you from functioning. And in some sense, it makes it uh, easier to function. Um, when you, you know, you go through the, the process, um, the knowledge of the misery, six, seven, and eight, uh, really seeing that the sense of self arises based on conditions and is constantly coming and going. It's not continuous. And it, and not only was it not continuous, it never was continuous. That was the illusion that's falling away. So you're not falling into something that's fundamentally different. You're falling out of the illusion about the way it's always been, if that makes sense. And so there is a, a deep coming home feeling that's also there. Oh, this is making sense finally. This has actually always been the way that it is. Um, the impermanent aspect, you know, it's, um, the way it is for me is the visual field is never fully solid. It's always buzzing. Uh, the sense of the body is always sort of coming and going. Um, that, and that's uh, the sense of the energy in the body is uh, uh, constantly there. So if you can remember a time when uh, you were practicing and there was no awareness of piti or the energy in the body, the body just seems still and solid. Uh, that piece doesn't really come back. Uh, it's just always flowing. It's always moving. It's always filled with these, these energy flows. But that's actually how it's always been. You, you have this narrow bit of bandwidth of consciousness, which you, uh, exclude all of this information from because that creates a sense of stability and security but it, it it's that is the illusion 
It's never been like that. And so uh, depending on how tenaciously you grip onto that, that need for that uh, solidness. One of the things about preoccupied, uh, the preoccupied mind is most of the time they believe that they're so slick in their presentation that nobody can see through it. So they're pretending to be this thing and they think that they're doing it so well that nobody can see through it. That's never been true. Everyone's always been able to see through it, but they've never allowed that information for themselves. Then when you see actually that everybody's always known that you were faking it, um, that becomes a terrifying uh, experience. And that's one of the things that I think is so distressing for the, the, the disruption of um, inauthenticity. Um, one of the things that happens to preoccupied people since they, they screen out the protests that people make about the inauthenticity um, Imagine going through your whole life being inauthentic and not allowing yourself any feedback from anybody that they can tell that you're inauthentic. And then all of a sudden not being able to screen that out anymore. And so everywhere you go, every time you present something inauthentically, you have the experience of people's pushback. The, the mechanism for that in preoccupied people is confusion. They, they get confused around the, the uh, people not accepting their inauthentic presentation. Um, and how it's experienced is uh, from the other side is uh, your boundaries keep getting crossed and you keep putting up more and more rigid boundaries until the boundaries are so rigid that the relationship doesn't work anymore and you, you uh, end the relationship. But for you on the opposite side of that experience have been signaling and signaling and signaling that it isn't working on the on the preoccupied side they've been screening out all of those signals and then the relationship for them abruptly ends without explanation imagine that veil being removed and then having to take in that understanding that actually that you were contributing to the to the, the relationships not working and that uh, that sense of uh, despair and and uh, bewilderment and uh, and that really is kind of the nature of that uh, experience um, dismissing people uh, what ends up happening for them is that the that sense of inflating themselves and uh, as long as they they keep themselves sufficiently inflated they don't have to drop down into the terrible sadness uh, of that early experience of constant rejection and um, the uh, aggravation of not really being connected to anyone. So imagine that collapsing and then you don't have the capacity to inflate the full sense of self to protect yourself from collapsing into the core of 
terrible sadness and then you're you've dropped into the terrible sadness and uh the thing about um dismissing people is most of them are pretty good explorers and uh and they drop into the terrible sadness and it doesn't take them very long to figure out that actually they can tolerate the terrible sadness and then um, what begins to happen then is all of those defensive strategies that they needed to keep them from having that experience begin to fall away because they're actually able to hold the experience of the terrible sadness without needing them and then when they discover that there there's this terrible loneliness that they experience in in that disconnection um but uh and see the value of how connection can uh relieve the experience of loneliness they know how to go about trying to connect to people and as soon as they see that there's a value in it they have the agency then to do it so it's not as catastrophic in the sense uh, of dismissing people it actually furthers their uh, healing in that sense without the the major disruption that comes from really uh, um, needing to find a different way of being which happens to the preoccupied people but they don't explore well so for them then to have to figure out how to to operate in a different way is, is much more uh, challenging is that making sense disorganized people um depending uh, complexly disorganized people have those dismissing qualities and so they can uh, navigate better uh, fearfully preoccupied uh, people um, uh, it's a the 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 chaos the internal chaos experience can become quite pronounced uh, and they don't have a good way of getting out of it and because they tend to use anger uh, as the their uh, means of connecting also have a hard time connecting to people who will help them because the the expressions are so uh, difficult uh, and dysregulating for people who would attempt to help um is that all making sense in terms of that um once you've been through the dissolution experience which is pretty ordinary if you practice in in the way that uh, mahasi sayadaw has described um on a long retreat for me it's pretty ordinary to to be through the dissolution stage in the first few days of the retreat uh, and it's and it's just an expected experience that will come and go and sometimes it's quite comical i described this one particular retreat where uh, the body completely dissolved except for the feet and the, my head and i really was walking around with the experience that my head was a balloon floating behind my feet with no connection at all to the to the body which was completely undetectable but that was hilarious uh, there wasn't any distress at all in it um, so one of the things to to do is to organize your practice if you wanted to go in deeply like this in communities where deep practice is ordinary and that uh, the teaching uh, uh, the teachers and the the support staff 
uh, have had the experience of this so that they know how to recognize it when you're having it and also what to do about it so that it doesn't become uh, derailing. And then if you're uh, also focused on the attachment stuff, begin this process of moving into authenticity now. And if you, if you um, um, can, you know, do an AAI and figure out what your attachment strategy is, or if you have the sense that your capacity to explore is inhibited, begin to uh, develop the capacity to explore now. This will, of course, further your meditation practice, but also when you get into some of these uh, uh, stages, um, you'll actually already develop the skills that you need to move through them into a place of uh, balance. When you come out of the knowledge of the miseries, you drop into this undercurrent of the desire uh, to be delivered from suffering. So you have to be able to recognize that and then uh, drop into it. And then it pulls you into this place of uh, reobservation. What reobservation means is that you, uh, as you take in experiences, you see that the self is not lasting. And so you don't uh, cling to any of those ex presentations that might suggest that it is. You see that as everything is impermanent, so you don't grab on to anything anymore. You recognize that you're in this uh, body that's aging and will be subject to sickness and death, that you can get what you want sometimes, but you, you don't get to keep it. it everything is lost. Sometimes uh, you don't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. And there's a subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is this double-edged sword, which you're not in charge of anything and it's not how you want it. Uh, and so how do you mitigate that experience so that you can be open and engaged in what is happening in each moment. Good enough. Why don't we do a little practice? So any comments or questions about the practice that we just did? Christian? Saved by the bell, George. I was this close to enlightenment. <laughs> um, Who was saved by the bell then? <laughs> the sense of self. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, is... Um, would you characterize a, a feel-in flow, or is that not really part of the, the whole deal? No, sure, it can be. You just don't fixate the sensations of it. Could you be? Could you unpack that a little bit more? Well, how do you notice? I, I mainly notice emotions in the body as a pattern of vibratory energy. So there's the flow aspect always. Um, how do you know? 
um, that you're having an emotion, is it embodied? Or is it cognitive? Hmm. I, I I feel like I can feel emotions, and I, I wasn't doing this practice, but I was I was curious. Uh, I feel like I can feel emotions as like a buzzing, you know, often in my head or sometimes you know in my belly or my chest or my throat, um, and I label those. And I would think of the labeling as the as the fixating, but maybe that's not that's not true. But then I can feel like a PT, like like. Um, even I started noticing the PT and I get it. I've been getting it in meditation around my, around my forehead, around my temple. Uh, when I do sort of any kind of concentration. Um, and that could be like in the same place as something that I would describe as emotional, but right. I just experienced it as just PT. So I was thinking feel out more. I wasn't really distinguishing between feeling and feel out, but I would kind of characterize that as feel out because I don't notice an emotional quality to it. Okay, that sounds good. That would be you're doing it right. Would that I, I'm curious where in that formulation, because it doesn't seem like I would ever label that as feel in flow. I would always label that as feel out flow without well, it's it, how you know the sensation, which is emotional in nature. Is it fixated or flowing? Okay, I see. So I would still have the sort of awareness of it being emotional, but it might not just be in one place, or it might be kind of changing. Right. Okay, that that clears it up. Someone else. All right. Um, Thank you for coming and practicing. Uh, Saturday, we're starting the level one series. So starting this Saturday, every other Saturday for four Saturdays, we'll go through the level one curriculum and then also the meditation and attachment for relationships, which is uh, the fourth uh, Saturday, which is about collaborative relationship skills. Um, you can come, it's the same link as this one. And um, uh, if you want to sign up, uh, that's appreciated, and or you can just show up. Um, it's offered on a Donna basis, so uh, we do appreciate uh, any donation that you might make. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing, but it's open to everybody. Uh, in September, we're going to be starting a level two. That's also up on the website. Take a look at that. Uh, that will be running from September until next spring. We have decided to do the year-end retreat in person, uh, and we'll be putting that up on the website in the next week or so for registration. It's limited to 16 spaces and it tends to fill up, or at least it has in the past. It's post-pandemic, so who knows what will happen in this uh, new world. Um, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it, and uh, I will see you next time, I hope. Bye.